And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Chris Thomas. And I'm Ryan Oliver. How are you doing this evening, Ryan? I- I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm happy to be doing a regular episode in which i'm not traveling in which i (laughs) I am not on spotty hotel uh wi-fi i'm not forgetting my uh microphone as i did on the patreon though (laughs) though you you being the editing whiz you are it sounded just fine but um happy to be in the comfort of my own home and doing a regular episode with you so this is this is good this is a good change of pace yeah it's good to see the usual backdrop of uh, uh black uh containers and uh, there's a, a pipe in the ceiling over there there's the, the pipe office. there's my speakers yeah, uh, mounted yeah. uh backfill speakers there's an old baby toy that's gonna get washed and brought out here <laughs> shortly so um you know just just nice yeah, to see a familiar, familiar. work Yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, I'm very excited for this episode. This uh, this has been on the Google Doc for a very long time. Yes. And I've been very excited uh, to talk about all three of these movies, even our bad, um, you know, in a sort of festivist airing of grievances sort of way. But uh, I, I'm still very excited. So I teased it at the end of the last episode. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you already know what the movies are. So give that a, a listen. Only one dollar to subscribe to our Patreon. Um, these are reappraised flops by notable filmmakers. These are filmmakers who, um, you know, either their previous film or films had a lot of notoriety that landed them this very big sort of carte blanche gig. And um, and at the time of their releases, respective releases uh, failed horribly all three of these movies bombed critically and commercially and set the respective directors on a certain career path after the fact uh Mm -hmm. for for better or worse uh depending on who the filmmaker is uh in any instance i mean i think one of them really really did just fine uh post their flop um but um i guess two of them probably did but uh but yeah these are movies that have been in the years since have been sort of reappraised and reclaimed as being sort of uh, secret successes or the very least not as bad as their reputation suggests, um, which makes sense, right? Like art, like stands the test of time. Art can't be sort of like pigeonholed um, to any certain time period. Some things are ahead of their time and they're just not appreciated in the moment for what they do. Um mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm really excited to get into these three movies because I think especially two of them were very ahead of their time. Um, and one of them just straight up is not as bad as its reputation suggests. Um, so I'm pretty excited for it. But yeah, I guess I should just lay out the picks and we can get right into it because I'm sure we're gonna have a lot to say about all of these movies. So yeah. uh, for the good, um, I have chosen 
Oh my god, my Google Doc signed me out. That's okay. I know them off oh, the top no. of my head. It's okay. I'll figure it out. Uh, the good is uh, Showgirls from 1995, directed by Paul Verhoeven. The bad is Southland Tales from 2006, directed by Richard Kelly. And the what is Dune from 1984, directed by David Lynch. Mm. But we will start with Showgirls. Where are you from? Different places. Tony, she's all public thrust. I think she prowls. Nice dress. Thanks. I bought it at Versace. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. You fuck him without fucking him. Well, it ain't right. You got too much talent for it to be right. I got an audition. <laughs> she's dazzling, she's exciting, and she's very, very sexy. She's a big star. You're not worth it. You are a whore, darling. We all are. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. You are the show. Chris, this was a first time watch for you, correct? It was, yeah. What did you think of this movie as as somebody who had never seen this movie before? Showgirls is a fucking blast. And I I think for me, Showgirls is one of those movies that the reputation precedes it. Kind of like Basic Instinct, I would say, where if you don't know anything about the movie, you at least know about the shocking graphic nudity. And so I'm not really drawn to those movies. For instance, I haven't seen basic instinct because movies that I think they're draw to it is um, uh, the nudity uh, or the nude scenes. Uh, I, I think is just a bit too pornographic for my tastes. Um, not that I have a problem with pornography. It's just that if I want to see pornography, I'll just go look at pornography and it doesn't last two hours. I can just look at it for as long as I need to. So I always just kind of had this, and eh, like amorphous thing in the back, back of my brain, like, yeah, it's directed by Paul Verhoeven, but nothing's really drawn me to it quite yet. And maybe I'll just let this one pass until you put it on the list. And I'm so grateful that you put it on the list because this movie to me is right up there with like Total Recall and Robocop and Paul Verhoeven's uh, oeuvre. Uh, it's, it's amazing. This is one of those movies that's ahead of its time, which I think is what really kind of led to its flop back in 1995. I can see where some audiences probably didn't connect with this one. Um, but it's it's grandiose, uh, incredible performances, incredible cinematography, and uh, the, the uh, choreography of the performances that they're doing on the Sunset Strip in Las Vegas. Um, and yes, there's a whole lot of boobs and I'm not going to complain about that either, but there's much more substance um, behind this movie uh, to the point where the, the nudity uh, just becomes sort of a flesh toned blur from scene to scene. And eventually uh, you're, you're not in it for the boobs. You're in it for the motivation of the boobs. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Much like the uh, sleazy uh, producers and showrunners and uh, uh, mm -hmm. hotel owners uh, and whatnot in this movie no i'm so glad to hear that this connected with you because i 
fucking love this movie. I love this movie so much. I think it is one of like the great American satires. And I love that it, like you said, I, I think it's exactly in the same vein as Total Recall, Robocop or Starship Troopers two years after this. It's very much a Paul Verhoeven movie in that way. Um, I, it, it's a very much a great companion piece with Scorsese's Casino, which came out the same exact year as this one of this sort of like mm-hmm. rise and fall in this sort of like seedy, gross, underbelly cesspool that we call Las Vegas. Um, I've had to do events in Vegas for many years, as you have as well. And I, I fucking hate Las Vegas. So um, so the, it's a very easy movie to win me over because like, oh, the city's gross. Hmm. You don't say um, weird. Yeah, really strange. But one thing I, I should lay the synopsis down and I'm going to do that in a second. But the one thing I really do like about Showgirls as opposed to even something like Casino is it's that rare movie about Las Vegas that really shows like the below the line talent, like the dancers, right. the choreographers, the, the bellhops, like the, the people who are just scraping to try and make a living in the city that people will come and blow tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars at any given time uh, on a vacation. And I think that there's um, I, I like that we get to see the livelihoods of these characters and how you know and how like depressing it is i'm I'm not saying people can't make a living in vegas they obviously can but it is just it's more the whole enterprise is depressing not these people's lives but just the whole machinery that vegas operates under Uh, i mean some of it i the i remember this last time i went to vegas when you're you get up in the morning and you're walking because we we've gone there for corporate events that we're working and so we're I haven't gone to Las Vegas to like hang out and have fun. I've always been there under the uh, the watchful eye of of my employer. So when you get up in the morning and you're walking to you know the Venetian to set up and and do your big event there, and you're there for the, for the purpose of work, the other people that you see on the strip at seven o'clock in the morning are other people trying to get to that convention, and then people that are in a bad way in Las yep. Vegas. And it's those people that are in a bad way that really stand out to me more than anything. Cause it's, you have all the glitz and the glam and the big buildings and the, and the sounds coming at you from all directions. But you see a guy who likely just lost his shirt in the casino, sitting on the curb at seven o'clock in the morning with a brown bag in his hand. You're like, Oh, that's Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the real, the real hard truth about las vegas absolutely no that's a that's a very like as you were describing it i'm like i've seen this picture mm-hmm. before you know i I'm right there with you um but for anyone who hasn't seen the movie the synopsis that i have written up here is nomi malone who's played by elizabeth berkeley is a drifter who makes her way to las vegas to become a dancer starting out at a lowly strip club owned by al torres played by robert davi Nomi catches the eye of star dancer Crystal Connors, played by Gina Gershon, and her sleazy boyfriend and entertainment director Zach Carey, played by Kyle McLaughlin, and lands a job in the chorus line of Connors' show. What ensues is a bitter rivalry and begrudging attraction between the aging star and the new starlet, with the latter realizing, like the tagline of Scorsese's Casino that came out the same year, nobody stays at the top forever. Um, Which is another interesting dynamic in the movie, too. It's It's that, like narrative we've seen in the movies where it's like the old hat sort of takes uh somebody under their wing in this case it's the star of this like las vegas topless review um 
which is like uh which is a great line that i love uh later in the or later in the movie once nomi gets the role uh in the chorus line or is like up for the role in the chorus line uh when she talks to james smith who's played by glenn Plummer in this movie um who's sort of like he's trying to make it as a choreographer um in the industry but and uh he meets her at a dance club because she starts shit or like some guy is really starting shit and she finishes it but ends up getting the boot from the club uh but he's like a bellhop and he's telling her like you know her current job at the strip club is like she's like at least he goes at least it's honest at least you know you're going there for tna he's like the 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 show that you're up for like people think they want more but they're just there for the tna because it, it's a big elaborate bob fossey-esque production yes there's great like musical numbers and chorus line dances and whatever but everyone's pyro yeah and pyro and and great costumes but and they got every- uh, um wires too they pick up gina gershon at one point she's like flying above everybody it's a big production yeah, it's a big production but everyone's topless in the yep. production as well like it, it, it's a classy version yeah. of what she's doing down at like robert davi's strip club uh mm-hmm. essentially and so i find that dynamic uh you know super fascinating as well but yeah like like i said in the synopsis she catches like gina gershon's like she sees something in it like she sees the younger version of herself in mm-hmm. nomi and so she's both like she's definitely like attracted to her in a way is clearly by like the lap dance number uh, where she does like a well, not a two-on-one. It's a one-on-one with Kyle McLaughlin and uh, and uh, Gina Gershon's just watching, um, watching intently, <laughs> very intently. Um, you know, and after that, she gets the 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 uh, audition. Uh, but she she's attracted to her, and she sees this fire in her. But she also feels this need to like belittle her and humiliate her at just about every turn. Like it's a mind game sort of thing. Like oh, Nomi yeah. like really wants to make it on her own. Um, but it's like it still is an industry in which you have to sort of know who you know mm-hmm. um, so it's like she's getting a leg up but she doesn't like necessarily want it but the fame is also too hard to really like turn down either um, so it's a very like fascinating dynamic between the two and I know uh, I've talked a lot and I want to hand it over to you I just want to give a big shout out to Elizabeth Berkeley because I think she for the brunt of a lot of the negative reception of this movie people saying her performance was bad or it was over the top or you know anything like that which like yeah that's bad no but like over the top sure that's the movie though that's the Mm -hmm. assignment and i think it was in a 2015 interview paul beerhoven like really owned the fact of the performance he's like whatever you think about it he's like i was the one telling her to exaggerate every single moment of that because i felt that worked for the movie so if you want to blame anybody blame me for that but that's what i was telling telling my actress to do sure i, I the one thing that i would say about her performance i i, I don't think her performance is bad at all i think that no. her performance is um uh, i don't want to say one note i'm trying to what is, i don't know what the phrase is i'm trying to think of it, it's it's exaggerated uh <laughs> it's very archetypal um she's uh very much like the she's like a bratty uh girl who um is very kind of uh stuck up in a way or like very full of herself and very strong and confident and doesn't need anybody else's help to get her by um and she kind of uses this to drive 
uh, her way into people's lives and play the game. And then eventually she does get to a point where she starts compromising her own ethics in order to continue to climb higher along mm-hmm. this ladder to, to hopefully get towards the starring role on this um, high stakes, high end uh, boob show The but she's like that from the very beginning. And, and I love sort of the introduction to her character where she, um hitchhikes into las vegas uh the guy that uh, drove her into vegas leaves and takes her suitcase and she's got nothing and she just goes into a um a, a casino and just starts playing slots and she wins a jackpot and and gets some quarters then she's like oh this is this is this is so excellent i got all these quarters then we get a cut of her putting her last quarter into the machine and losing it and yeah. it tells you pretty much everything that you need to know about this character is that she loves the instant gratification. Um, she loves to have fun at the expense of not having uh, foresight or, or not having a long-term vision. Um, she's all about living in the here and now. Um, and I love that they set all this up at the beginning because then as things start to spiral and she's getting further and further down this rabbit hole, you don't foresee that she's going to pull up. <laughs> You're no. just like, she's going to continue to make the choices going to drive her further down this path. Uh, and I, I think it also helped that she's not relatable, at least to me, um, or even that likable to me. Um, she's a very, she's an interesting character. I just, mm-hmm. I mean, like I would never hang out with this person. Uh, like I would not get along with, <laughs> with this woman at all. Um, but that made it more interesting to me because then as an outside observer, I was able to sort of watch this person not necessarily destroy their lives, but play with fire and be like, I'm, I'm just waiting to see around if, if you catch. Absolutely. No, I think that's a great like way to describe it. And I want to, I did want to point out a crucial moment in that moment where she puts out uh, puts her last quarter in. I think that mm. scene comes just before she realizes that that guy took off with her luggage because she get that guy gives her ten yeah, bucks. I think so. Um, and then she wins, but then ends up blowing blowing the money on a slot machine. But a, a sleazy dude comes up to her as she's putting that last quarter and says, "Hey, honey, need to make some money." Um, so it's like we we know exactly what uh, what he's insinuating there. Mm-hmm. Um. In which she's like, you know, fuck off in so many words. Um, but then you see that later again, that sort of like compromise of of values of, of what she held strong in that moment uh, just right. continues to decline because, you know, she's there to dance. She just is there to dance. She's there to uh, become famous. Like it, it, it's, be a star. Yeah. it wants to be a star. Exactly. And so there's not really like that's the sort of end game. And so it's no matter how like she'll do it by whatever means necessary, which we see like, as we tip towards the third act of the movie of those sort of necessary decisions she's made that have hurt people that you, that she genuinely does care about. Like, like I said, she's not necessarily relatable or even likable character, but you could, I could say for certain that there's at least a few characters that she does uh, care about in the movie. I think to a certain extent, she cares about, crystal i think they're sort of final moments in the movie like there there's there's an adoration there if a rivalry um then of course there's um there's a character of uh molly played by gina rivera who's the one who sort of brings her in um, saves her life saves her life yeah. after she's on at rock bottom at the very beginning of the movie um that's how she's introduced to gina gershon at first because uh molly's a costume designer mm-hmm. so she works on the costumes of the the show that gina gershon is working on um and then they're they're sort of like uh their sort of first exchange is weird and it's one of those things where i understand 
audiences in 1995 being like oh this movie is just bad like i I, like it's it's really awkward some of the stuff but i i do think that's by design and i think that the other thing to point out is like this movie to a lot of people in the year since has been like a a quote-unquote so bad it's good or is enjoyed as this like so bad it's good movie and i don't first i don't see that i think it's a so good it's good movie but what i think people don't understand and I say this as somebody who occasionally says words incorrectly or their meaning incorrectly. So I'm not above this, but um, this movie is campy. And I mean that in its dictionary definition of the word, like camp is a style of filmmaking. Yes. And this movie is made in the style of camp. And, but I feel so often when people use the word campy, they mean bad, you know, to quote yeah. Princess Bride, it's a, you keep saying that word. I don't think you know what it means sort of thing. I, I think it's too often misconstrued with bad, but it's like, no, campy is campy. Like John, the films of John Waters is camp. Rocky Horror Picture mm-hmm. Show is camp. This movie is camp. That was the style that Verhoeven was going for from the very start of the movie. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it might also just be a combination of a movie with this budget with a known director behind it that looks this good. Like the amount of effort that they're putting in. I mean, you mentioned earlier already the scene where they go to the club and then uh, she runs into uh, Glenn Plummer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that scene blew my mind just because there's like a, a quick cut where uh, I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but uh, Nomi's had a bad day and is talking to Molly and Molly is just like, you know, where we're going to go smash cut to the club where there's a big dance floor music is pumping everyone's dancing just a huge crowd of people and the camera's on a crane and it cranes over this crowd of people that are dancing until you see nomi in the audience and the camera pushes in on the crane to where it's all one shot pushes (laughs) in to where nomi is dancing establishing her does a 90 degree turn keeping her in frame so just pivots on her backs up over the crowd again and then peds down over the shoulder of uh glenn Plummer and his other friend who's like a bouncer at the bar st- sitting at the bar watching her dance and it's like that amount of effort put in to just get that shot is the sort of thing that you hire uh, a director like this for because they're going to put that amount of, like they're going to waste a day of shooting in order to get that shot because they know that it's going to be awe-inspiring and grandiose and it fits the vision of the overall film yeah but then I think when you have a movie that's made like that, but then you have a movie that lacks all subtlety, there's no subtlety whatsoever throughout all of Showgirls. And I think that plays for the best as long as you're Mm -hmm. on board with that sort of thing. But I can see the audience of 1995 being of two minds of being like, this looks like a movie where there wouldn't be nearly as many boobs and there would be more twists and turns and intrigue, but no, everything is just raw and in your face and abrupt and it's like yeah but there's nothing inherently wrong with that no well and this is one of those beautiful instances where it's not like Verhoeven was brought on to like do this as like a gun for hire it was conceived right. from the very start that he would be directing this movie because you know it's it, it's apropos that you mentioned uh basic instinct a bit ago mm-hmm. because this is a most you know it's a famous reunion not just for Verhoeven but for Joe Esterhaus the screenwriter um who at the time was the highest paid screenwriter uh along with Shane Black uh Mm -hmm. he had written Flashdance like that I think that was his first uh, script I said first strip but I mean Freudian slip there but either is applicable um in that instance but um but he wrote Basic Instinct 
and um, which Paul Verhoeven, of course, directed. And that movie was a massive hit, a huge hit. Um, And so uh, when this movie was being conceived, uh, Paul Verhoeven said he always liked big like MGM style musicals. And um, Joe Esterhouse is like, what if we set it in like the world of like Las, set in the world of Las Vegas? Um, and then it sort of like came to fruition and uh, Joe Esterhouse wrote the script. And I got to say, like, you know, it's a collaboration. And I think Showgirls works. I think Basic Instincts works. Uh, I actively dislike every other thing Joe Esterhouse has done. Oh, okay. uh, like, even, and, and he's great directors have done his scripts before we he uh philip noise directed sliver which we talked about on a previous episode um that movie sucks uh billy friedkin the late great william friedkin uh r.i.p directed jade um that movie also kind of sucks so um it's just he's got a certain way of writing and a certain like sense of sleaze and i feel like verhoven is like a hundred percent on that wavelength and so like showgirls was sort of conceived as this big mgm style musical but then it was going to be this like satire uh verhoven gave up 70 percent of his six million dollar director's fee and would only take the other 30 million if the movie was a success which the movie did eventually recoup its budget which we'll get to um essentially it made at the time over a hundred million dollars in video rental sales um so like it didn't do well theatrically it made like 39 million worldwide on a 45 million dollar budget uh but it was a massive hit on the home video circuit but it was um yeah no kidding people were like it's like deep throat people were uncomfortable going to the theater but they were going to watch it in the comfort of their own home right so um but uh they conceived it from the start so verhoven gave up that much of his budget to have the movie be nc-17 um, so it was always conceived from the start that it was going to have that rating that they weren't going to have to cut anything because basic instinct they did have to cut some scenes to go down from an nc-17 to an r because um, basic instinct is also very violent too in addition to being like sexually explicit um, okay. versus this movie's well there's one violent scene which is like what keeps it from being a five-star movie to me because yeah. uh, you know we'd be remiss to not warn people who haven't seen it there's a really graphic rape scene in this movie that is yes. wholly unnecessary like it does not drive anything forward of the plot and it's just nasty and awful and yeah that's the only thing that knocks us down from being like a perfect five-star movie to me is because i'm like that scene doesn't need to be here <laughs> no no and it, it puts sort of a sour taste on the end of the movie just because well especially because uh, i will I, I guess we're already into spoilers because you've already kind of a graphic rape scene, but yeah, spoilers. Um, th- that scene, it's there's an interesting thing that sort of happens with Elizabeth Ber- Berkeley's character in that the people that she interacts with throughout the movie have something that happens to them where their their life is changed forever. Um, and it sort of starts with, um sorry, Glenn Plummer, uh, that she meets. I mean, like he gets fired from the bar, uh, where he was a bouncer because he was dancing with her and then a fight got started and whatnot. And right. he bails her out of prison and she doesn't give a shit, which it was just like, I would at least say thanks to the guy for bailing me out. But he gets a job as a bellhop. He loses the job as a bellhop because he's talking to her in the scene that you already explained. And then there 
there's this scene where he tr- like dances with her and tries to show her the song that he had written for her and choreographed for her mm-hmm. and they don't have sex because she's on her period and so then she leaves but then we find out later uh he had done this dance with another girl who uh, hope who worked at that uh strip club um uh the uh, rubber dobby's uh strip club and they sort of have their falling out even though they're not dating um elizabeth berkeley nomi takes this as like a a slight like you like you cheated on me sort of thing but there's this scene later on where they they meet each other again she goes and sees him do his dance at the bar nobody at the bar gives a shit and we find out that um hope the other stripper uh is now pregnant with his kid and so there there there's sort of this b story that's going underneath here where you think that there's an arc here for a destined pairing you know, they meet early on, they keep meeting throughout the movie and having these moments where he's trying to guide her and trying to help her. And eventually, you know, she's going to turn around, she's going to take his advice and, you know, they're going to ride off into the sunset together. But I love that this movie sort of abruptly just goes, uh, no, actually, he accidentally got another lady pregnant. So they're going to get married and he's going to go off on his own trajectory. And, you know, never again will these two roads meet. And I was like, I love that yes it zigs when you think it's gonna zag and i i I think it fits with the overall sort of like aura that nomi brings to Mm -hmm. the movie because like as awful as vegas is and we've sort of belabored that point like it is a well-oiled machine right Mm -hmm. like it's it's a machine in which everybody has their sort of spot and the wheels keep turning and they keep grinding the lights stay on the performances go on so on and so forth but her with just she's just chaotic energy and the fact is like again vegas is what it is but like everything sort of the wheels are greased and everything's sort of moving the way it should be and then she enters the picture and everyone else's lives are sort of like disrupted or not better off having mm-hmm. known her no. like it just like disrupts the entire uh like establishment of of things um so like i i think it fits that they like of course like it's not a meet cute it's not a meet like oh we're destined to meet it's like this is now my life because i know you like i've been fired from two jobs uh i thought you were a person and you know then i hooked up with this other stripper because she's she's the one at the beginning right the what's your name penny like no your name's hope no one wants to fuck a punny they want to fuck a hope um yeah yeah. (laughs) God, Robert Davi, like real life uh, scumbag Robert Davi, um, is a scumbag in this movie, but he's kind of great. Like, oh yeah, that he plays scene, a good scumbag. He plays a great scumbag. That scene when uh, him and the gal, uh, who's like the comedic relief at the strip club, yeah, the, the, the mother, I think, yeah, absolutely, uh, come to visit Nomi on the the set, uh, and it's like genuinely meant to be like a heartfelt, like we're proud of you scene. But yeah. with the the crass lines that they're saying with like that music underscoring to this must be weird not having someone come on you. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what? And that's like his parting words. He yeah. like is walking away, he stops and turns around. Must be weird have not having somebody come on you at the end of the night. <laughs> and then it walks out and is like, why it's, is that the last thing you say to her? It's so perfect. It's so oh, yeah. great. <laughs> oh yeah. It'll be perfectly timed and they they don't they don't break the scene they don't you don't have like a reverse shot of her reaction of disgust or anything it 
is delivered like a genuine heartfelt parting words from like a proud father yes and, like, and that's and it vague. fits in this world yes it, it fits it's so good it's so so good oh man there's so many great great sequences great lines like i said i think everyone understands the assignment um even even people who after the fact have gone on record say that they were deeply embarrassed to be in this movie uh the one actor in particular uh who will come up again at the end of this episode of course is kyle mclaughlin mm-hmm. uh was not really didn't like this movie and how mm. it turned out and i'm like hmm okay is it because you character is a, a you know a sleazebag and is perceived as such i mean like I mean, I'll give him this. He's doing what I feel the assignment is. I think he's yeah. great in the movie, but it's just so hard to odd that it's like, why are you embarrassed by it? Like you're 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 given you're given it, man. So I don't yeah. I don't know. But he's involved. I think he does a great job. Um yeah. I I and it it might just be a byproduct of how the movie performed. I think so. Like, oh my god, like I rolled the dice on this NC seventeen uh borderline pornographic movie and, and now it's flopping. I got to come out in, in some sort of opposition uh, of it. Um, and I wish he had, because uh, time has proven, um, unfortunately, yeah. it proven him wrong. It's, yep. it's, it's fantastic. I think it's great too. Um, so many, so many memorable lines, so many great performances. I mean, I shout out to, to Gina Gershon, who's the, mm-hmm. to me, the queen of understanding the assignment in like these kind of movies. Like it, she's, she's been in, so many of these like type of like sleazy bordering on like you know she's in this she's in bound to the wachowski's yeah. first movie she's in killer joe speaking of william friedkin and speaking of nc-17 um she's in that movie in this fantastic but yeah she's she is great their exchange at the canal uh shops up in the venetian <laughs> Yeah. Where there's like, do you like, do you like big tits? <laughs> or like, or it's just like, I like big tits. Uh, yeah. And don't we be in like, I like having big tits. It's like yeah. poetry, just absolute yep. <laughs> gutter poetry. That's the same conversations I've had at the upstairs of the Venetian. All the time. Yeah. Almost every time. That's just what you do when you're in the, in the <laughs> drinking shops. champagne and talking about big tits. I also want to give it the shout out to the score, which is by David Stewart oh, of the Eurythmics. Yeah. Um, okay. Which is, uh, which is fantastic. And and it's sort of fitting. Like you could tell in like the dance club scenes, it's got that like rhythmics sort of like feel to it. But, uh, but then like the big bombastic, like musical numbers too, are like, they feel like big band musical numbers oh, yeah. and they're, they're just, they're phenomenal. Like the production values of this movie is, is off the chain. And, I, I just kind of wrote in my recent letterbox rewatch. I'm just like, we didn't know how good we had it when a big budget NC 17, like satire could come out in wide release. Like uh, uh, bring it back. This is, I know <laughs> this is what the world is missing. Now we don't need the, the umpteenth sanitized uh, Disney live action remake or star Wars movie or a superhero of the minute. Uh, find us a Paul Verhoeven, give him, carte blanche to make an nc-17 movie and then just see what comes out on the other side i love it i mean he's still working um you know he did that movie l a couple years ago um, Showgirls too oh they made a Showgirls too oh not, not with him it's called like Showgirls two pennies from heaven it's like it's notoriously pretty trash like actually garbage like <laughs> real Coming bad soon to a good bad what no should we should we do the the sequels of the uh, 
the shitty sequels of of Paul Verhoeven movies that that uh, Robocop two. Well, that would probably be the good by default. Probably. Like, because the other ones would be like Basic Troopers two. There's Basic Instinct two. There's um, Hollow Man two. Why? I don't know. I don't it even like the Hollow Man one. I don't even like the first Hollow Man. It's my least favorite Verhoeven movie, like considerably. Um, and then yeah, there's uh, yeah, Basic Instinct two. I might have already mentioned that. Showgirls two. Um, so yeah, I get. Oh God, we could do a category of here are sequels to uh to Paul Verhoeven movies that Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> I mean, like I said, we could do RoboCop two. At least Irvin Kershner yeah. directed it. Like it's a legit written by Frank Miller um or co-written somebody had to come rewrite it because his version <laughs> couldn't couldn't be made hmm i wonder why mm-hmm. <laughs> about the everything about any frank miller comic but yeah. um but uh yeah showgirls is uh like it's a phenomenal movie and i think people should watch it and i think that even if you watched it years ago and you thought it was bad or you thought it was like whatever give it another shot like and, and especially if you can get your hands on this vinegar syndrome 4k oh my god it is immaculate it looks phenomenal <laughs> it looks so good like and verhoven supervised it himself um so it's just like blows my mind D- disc of the year one of the best discs of the year easily shocking i the only only other one that i would say probably gives it a run for its money is the vinegar syndrome of roadhouse Oh, absolutely. The Vinegarson Roadhouse is also phenomenal. Which oh yeah, that's coming soon to a good bad what near you. Oh hell yeah, it is. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, any other do you have any other thoughts on showgirls before we, we move on? No, I I think if anyone is like me and has held off on watching showgirls uh because of reputation, um you're doing it wrong. Yes. Jump in and watch it today. Absolutely, yeah, please do. I think I do think it is on Tubi, which bless them. Oh, uh, God bless Tubi. Like if you if you could get the 4K, please do. I mean, it's it's not out of print or anything. Like you can 100% do it. But if you don't want to drop that money and you want to test the waters first, it is on Tubi. But just know that if you do like it, there's a immaculate, spectacular uh, restoration out there that you should mm-hmm. seek out. But yeah, it is on Tubi if you want to test the waters. Um, so I, I say go in, um, jump in head first. Um, but a uh, movie, uh, <laughs> you can, you can jump in head first as long as the water is very shallow. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think as shallow as this movie is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not safe to jump in head first, I guess. I yeah. Say. I don't think so. With, uh, with Southland tales. I'm going to tell you the story of the journey down the road not taken. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. These are the sordid tales of how it all came crashing down. is an epic Los Angeles crime saga. And you're researching your role? Yes, it takes place in the near future. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. You're gonna have to wear a bulletproof vest. Let's talk about your phone. What's it really about? They're listening. They're 
look so scared, Mr. Santeros. The future is just like you imagine. Ah! Um, from 2006. Uh, I guess 2006 slash 2007. Um, oh. it, it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in 2006. Um, okay. Richard Kelly submitted it like via a DVD, not even thinking remotely that they would accept it. And they did. And so he's like, oh, uh, okay. Um, I'll get you a, a print of that. And uh, yeah, it uh, it's longer, the can's cut. It's a 240, I think. Wow. Um, and this one's already 225, I believe. Already um, far too long. It's already far too long. Well, he, he, he cut it down. When it got distribution, he made a deal to cut the running time down if that he could get like the extra funding for like, to complete the VFX shots in the movie. And so, uh, so that was a trade-off that whoever bought it like agreed to, but um, yeah, debuted at two hours and 40 minutes. It was a very disastrous uh, screening at the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> uh, oh, you don't say, mm. um, but this was your first time seeing this movie, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and last um, <laughs> you're smarter than me. Cause I've seen this movie now four times and i want to point out that i've seen this movie more times than i've seen donnie darko because <laughs> i've only seen donnie darko three times if i'm recalling it so uh, i watched donnie darko a ton when i was in high school uh, oh that's fair yeah. um but no i mean admittedly i might be a little bit flippant i i i could see myself watching this one again and only because of one specific experience and that was I know that I texted you a few times while I was watching the movie because I was having the hardest time just grasping not so much what was going on, but what, like why, like what it was trying to, to get to me. Cause I was like, I understand sort of like where the characters are and what's going on here. I mean, I don't know how you could not because the, the 90% of the dialogue in the movie is exposition, but the, there was a, point with, with like just about an hour left or a little over an hour left uh where i paused the movie because i had to go do something and uh when i came back there was like an hour left in the movie i had not enjoyed any of it that i had seen up until that point and i was just like i'm gonna take a, a little little puff off of the bubbler and then see if that is you know the magic ingredient that i'm i'm missing and you know what the last hour of this movie I had a legitimately good time because I, I stopped wrestling with what the movie was trying to feed me and then just let it wash over me instead. And it was just like, there there's, I kept trying to find substance and there just wasn't any. And then when I stopped searching, then I could just laugh at a couple of the gags that came along uh, and, and then just forget about the stuff in the middle. Which is not the mark of a good movie, but it made it made it a more enjoyable experience. Uh, well, I'm glad that that did. I, it's it's so funny that you say that. I'm I'm glad that you had that experience because mine this time was the exact opposite. Oh, because okay. because I took a gummy uh, and and it probably kicked in around that like hour into it mark. And the second half of the movie is where I like lose interest in the movie. Like, okay. I understand the first half. There's so much exposition and all that, but I, I'm interested in the world and I'm interested in some of the things that at least it seems like it's starting to say, hmm. but it's, 
ends up to me that I think what makes it frustrating is like it just feels like a lot of loosely connected half-baked ideas that don't quite like reach their full potential of what they try to do because sure. I like the world of the movie and I wrote a synopsis but it's very like the movie is super confusing um and even my synopsis is confusing so I'm like I'm gonna try and paraphrase like a little bit or just sort of set up the world of the movie because essentially sure. what it what this movie posits and it, and it isn't a horrible surprise given that like we talked about it when we talked about Donnie Darko on an episode where like Donnie Darko's like, you know, the teenage angst and the uh, sort of like interesting time space bending of the movie is it's sort of big draw, but there is a lot of like socially political commentary, like underneath the surface of Donnie Darko. It's not like oh, yeah. the most subtle, but like it's there, but it's just a texture versus this movie. It's all like text about what it's saying. It's like an alternate 2008, essentially where world war three is broken out after two, like, dual nuclear attacks somewhere in texas um and it's an election year and california is like is basically like florida in the 2000 in the 2000 election where like the election hinges on who gets california that like a republican might win california for the first time since uh reagan and um so it like posits this world in which the world war is happening the draft's been reinstated um the uh the patriot act has now morphed into this more like restrictive kind of like forum where like you can't even like surf the internet without like certain like permissions and whatnot like really like obscuring information um and then there's like a underground group called the neo-marxists who have sort of like uh take like taken over or not taken over but are trying to sort of like break through the the status quo um and essentially what the neo-Marxists are doing is that there's this action star in the movie who's played by uh, Dwayne Johnson. His name is Boxer Santoro, who washes up on a beach somewhere in Venice uh, with complete amnesia. He doesn't like remember anything. Um, and he ends up with this uh, porn star who's also a part of the neo-Marxist movement. Uh, her name is Krista Now, uh, who's played by Sarah Michelle Geller. Um, and she's now like an entrepreneur because she's working with uh, the uh, Wallace Shawn's character, who I forget his name, on this like alternative fuel source. But I guess this alternative fuel source is like the mining of it is ripping the fabric of the space time continuum. Mm. Um, so essentially, the Marxists want to blackmail um, this uh, Republican senator. Uh, his name is um, I, sorry, I can't keep track of all the names. Bobby Frost. Uh, played by Holmes Osborne, who's the dad from Donnie Darko. Mm -hmm. um, and his daughter is played by Mandy Moore, is the wife of uh, Boxer Santoro. So essentially they have incriminate, not incriminating evidence, but like evidence of uh, Boxer sleeping with Sarah Michelle Gellar's character. And so they want to leverage that to blackmail and get hush money essentially for it. Uh, meanwhile, the neo-Marxists also capture uh, the twin brother of a racist cop, uh, both of them are played by Sean William Scott. Um, and he ends up being the sort of like key to all of this that is going on. Um, and that's not a even very a Donnie Darko-esque way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of the, the mirror shot is very, mm -hmm. very akin to Donnie Darko. There's a lot of that in it as well. Um, 
I think the movie's trying to be like a satire of like where we're headed, like where yes. we were, the country is at in 2000, circa 2006 when this movie came out. And I appreciate a lot of that. I appreciate a lot of the, the there's a lot of poking fun at reality TV with like the Krista now character, uh, incessant branding where like the tanks have branded hustler, hustler on the side of yeah. them. You know, I like, I like that aspect of it. Um, the cast is like deeply idiosyncratic like what a strange but like really inspired cast in this movie yes. like you have Dwayne Johnson you have Sarah Michelle Gellar Sean William Scott as we already mentioned uh you have John Lovitz as like uh, a, a cop instigating well we find out he's maybe not really a, a cop murderous a murderous uh, but like you know but like police brutality is something that's still on everybody's mind so there's some mm-hmm. imagery in there that's like this is very pointed and I think like accurately and deliberately so, um, but like, it's got John Lovitz, it's got Sherry O'Terry, it's got Amy Poehler, probably when she was still, uh, and featuring on Saturday mm-hmm. night live instead of actually like a main player. Um, it's, it's, uh, you have Kevin Smith in it as well. Uh, Christopher Lambert. Sean, Christopher Lambert is in it too, who's great. He's actually great in his little oh, bit yeah. part in the movie. I, I, I love Christopher Lambert in this movie um there's there's so many uh, and and justin timberlake uh as will well sasso. Will, will sasso i forgot he was in the movie <laughs> watching uh sarah michelle geller's uh uh thing on the news and i was like oh that's right will sasso in this movie uh zelda zelda rubenstein from poltergeist mm-hmm. is in the yeah. movie as well uh you can't mistake that look and voice the second she starts speaking you're like yep i know who that is um jt 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 is maybe like my highlight of the movie um mainly because this movie despite the fact that I think it's um I, I know it sounds like I'm being positive on the movie but it's a goddamn mess like this whole endeavor mm-hmm. um but it has one of my favorite needle drops uh, of all time in it where the movie stops for an elaborate choreographed uh musical number and it's uh, all these things I've done by the killers um and and jt's he's just pantomiming it he's not actually singing it obviously but yeah. which is odd i'm like you have justin timberlake and you didn't yeah, like, write a song yeah. for him to do it but like i mean but that song is great it's my favorite killer song so i'm like okay sure i'll allow it um but it's just like i love like i said i on paper i love everything that i just mentioned but in execution oh boy like it like the choices that are made like um like just just the it, it's baffling where it ends up going doesn't like make sense it goes careens off the rails even though the cast is really inspired some of them make choices that you're like i don't know if this is richard kelly's decision or if the actor's decision. like dwayne johnson does this like thing with his hands like the whole time that mm-hmm. drives me fucking nuts every time i've watched this movie like it's mm-hmm. like he's scheming or it's like an anxious tick yeah he's nervous just, yeah Which i exactly. think is i think it's supposed to play against type because you see like when we're introduced to dwayne johnson's character this is also like pre heavy like heavy uh hgh uh use uh the rock like he's he's ripped he's buff he's like in, in great shape in this movie as you would expect him to be like he was just out of the wwe at this point he might have still even been wrestling in 2006 i don't, I don't know he might have been but like but i mean but he hadn't done he had he had transitioned to acting but he didn't have like a ton of credits and so being in this movie he was already cast against type like it, yeah. it's for for as disastrous as i think this movie is i'd love to see him take another 
thing like this. Uh, I think he's capable. I mean, what's the closest we got in recent memory? Pain and gain, probably the the most that he actually like stretched those acting muscles. Maybe, yeah. I haven't seen the Jumanji movies, but I haven't either. But it's not the Fast and Furious movies, even though he's no. fun in them. I wouldn't say he's stretching that muscle. He's not against type. No, not against type. Neither Black Adam uh, as nope. well, uh, or Jungle Cruise, or any of that. What was that one stuff. bullshit one where he had to climb the building that was on fire? Oh, skyscraper. Skyscraper. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. San Andreas. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know. But like at this point, he had done like um, not a lot. Like the Mummy Returns. Uh, the uh, yeah, yeah. Hell we know yeah. um, <laughs> the, the Scorpion King. Uh, yeah. the, the spinoff. Uh, the Rundown also with Sean William oh, yeah. Scott. The Rundown's a fun movie. Right. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but uh, it's a good one. Uh, the remake of Walking Tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did Be Cool, the like years later sequel to Get Shorty. Um, but yeah, he hadn't done a whole lot. And so this is a pretty bold choice for him to to do this movie. Yeah. Um, and he's rarely made a bold choice since. And the unfortunate thing is I can't blame him either. <laughs> I, I mean, I, the reception of this movie may have been a turnoff for making the bold choice. I mean, like, yeah. not everybody can be, you know, like a like a Daniel Radcliffe who's just like, I've made my money and my fame, and I can just choose whatever fucking project I want and not worry about the outcome because I've got this huge Harry Potter nest egg this is sitting over here on a shelf so i can go off and make a farting corpse movie this weekend if i want to I that's can, true or I'm robert beyond Pat- broadway and hang dong or robert pattinson and kristen stewart yeah, exactly. who do all kinds of weird interesting movies or they're like we made our twilight money you know and yeah. i guess now we he's batman so yeah so he's well, made yeah money. but batman fucking rocks so yeah the batman was great um but oh god but this movie it's just like the wheels come off very like, like what, like in the midsection of this movie where it's just mm. like ever, like once they sort of hand Dwayne Johnson over to like his wife. And yeah. then it's like, I, I guess it's supposed to be sort of like this, you know, everybody is sleeping with somebody because like she's pregnant, but it's not with Dwayne Johnson. It's with like the AIDS uh, uh ch- like a political aid not like the disease um yeah. but uh, a child and so it's just like okay like these are all things that i'm like through years of just like politics and then like media or satire commenting on politics or or you know movies and television like we can infer all of this that this probably all happens, you know, right. It's just to an exaggerated degree. Sure. Um, so it's just one of those things where it's just like, it's just a, a how we get from, po- it's not a point A to point B movie. It's like a, it's like the, it's like the Charlie Kelly whiteboard of like, yeah, trying to like put all the things together. Um, and it makes no sense. Well, and it's, it's, it's purely lands on the shoulders of Richard Kelly because I mean, of course he's the director and the writer of it, but it, to me, it's wild that this movie came out in 2006 and it's the same year that idiocracy came out because this movie is very similar to idiocracy in that it's a satire specifically against the Republican agenda in a post nine 11 world. There's a lot of allusions to sort of the brain drain of society and, 
I mean, there, there's even several times like transitions where we'll cut into a TV and the TV has several different channels on. And some of those channels have ads that are playing. And then there's just like a constant hustler ad that's up there or like some other ad. And it's like, it's not that far off from next up on Al My Balls. Like it's yeah. almost that Mike Judge joke. And I texted you at one point before I had taken the hit off the bubbler where I had realized the cast that we had already talked about all of these recognizable heavy hitters in the comedy world. And I texted you and I said, is this movie supposed to be a comedy? And I meant that in earnest at the time, because at that point I like, there's so much stuff going on that is like real heavy stuff. Um, and the story is sort of pitched and presented in such an earnest manner that I, I was not getting the satire out of any of it. And I was not getting the comedy out of any of it, but I recognized that there were people in situations that should have been comedic. And I was just baffled at the fact that like, none of this is funny, but is that even what they're going for? And if I think they're not going for it. Why cast these people? I think it is supposed to be funny. I just think that the movie is too satisfied with its sort of self. And I think it's too angry and I understand th- that said anger. I get it. Trust. I it's do. 2006. Yeah, I, all yeah, right. I, I get it. I'm right there. I'm right there with you. I'm not going to knock you for that. But I think the movie is too angry to allow it to be funny. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, there are movies that can be angry, funny, but I just, I just think that the movie is too. And and maybe it's trying to play it too down the middle too. I, I like, you know, to where you could draw your own like conclusions to it. But I just in either whether one or all or none of those instances are true it doesn't matter because it still doesn't land however you slice it it just doesn't doesn't land unfortunately um and and the biggest moment where i i sort of called out that i'm like i think you're kind of full of shit man like and i hate to say that about like you know because it's like an artist should be able should be free to make their movie whether i like it or not or we Mm -hmm. like it or not like they should be free to make their own movie and i I guess I'm happy the movie exists in a way. I mean, I've I've seen it four times. I don't know what's wrong with me. I think it's because on paper I find the movie fascinating, but then every time I'm like, oh yeah, this is how it's presented, and uh, it's not working for me. But well, it's strange uh, because I wouldn't say it's not worth a watch. No, I it isn't. Today, it's... Like I didn't hate it, but I didn't enjoy it, and I wouldn't recommend it. But if you were to watch it, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing. Like it's a really no. weird movie this could be a what in some other category it could but i uh i don't know (laughs) yes it could (laughs) it could but um you know but i i remember when we talked about uh when we talked about poultry guys uh night of the chicken dead i brought up southland tales uh in context with that movie uh being like a post 9-11 sort of like satire and about like consumerism and uh or at least a layer of it being about consumerism and i like i thought of that a lot like i thought of this while watching that and then while i was watching this thought about poultry guys and i'm like man i think i prefer poultry guys to be honest but um the moment sorry i got off track the moment i realized that this movie is kind of full of shit or this movie like is too smug to sort of realize its own sort of satire potential is there's a thread of this movie where um boxer santoro and uh kristen now have collaborated on a screenplay and that screenplay has sort of like made its way out and so people who are working for like the roided out version of like the patriot act uh, have like gotten a hold of this and have started started to sort of awaken 
from like all of this and realize everything is sort of bullshit um which is where things start to unravel like in the world of the movie but um in the screenplay he's like pitching it to like will sasso in the movie and he notes that his character's name is jericho kane um if you think that name sounds familiar and you've been a long time listener to the show you might remember that that is the character of arnold schwarzenegger's name in the movie end of days which we have talked about on this show um and richard kelly strikes me as somebody who's probably above a movie like end of days he doesn't strike me as somebody who has actually watched that movie so for him i think he thinks he's making like a clever joke by that being such an obvious sort of like thudding like reference but like dude it was done in arnold schwarzenegger movie like and I will be frank that I enjoy that movie more than I do Southland Tales, which is not a good movie. <laughs> no. no, it was in the bat on our episode. I think if I remember correctly. So, in the days. Yeah. 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 It wasn't it. Okay. That's what I thought. And so, uh, so I, th- that was the moment this time where I'm just like, like, you know, I, I, I liked Donnie Darko when we talked about it on the episode, that was the first time I really connected with that movie um because i hadn't in like the year since and i really really came to meet the movie on its terms and understand when we when we revisited the box like not a fully successful movie but a lot to admire about that movie i I think a lot about the movie works but um even though there's a lot to admire admire in this movie like and i say this trying not to be as mean as possible but like during that sequence that was the moment i was just like fuck you dude like <laughs> like seriously <laughs> like, get get out of here well and it's it's funny too because it's like just short of Shyamalan's bullshit that he pulled in lady in the water where he was the tenant oh. of that uh apartment complex who yes. is a screenwriter who ends up being like literally the messiah who will like lead people to the the graceland or whatever like it, like he uh uh Richard Kelly doesn't self-insert. I think he does have a, a short cameo in the movie as like a guard who introduces one of the characters to someone else. I I wasn't paying attention, but I think it was it looked like him and sounded like him. But mm-hmm. um, he doesn't self-insert himself in the movie as the Messiah character. But like the screenwriter of the movie is the Messiah character, so it's mm-hmm. like very easily you could okay connect point a to point b that the screenwriter made the screenwriter in the movie the messiah character so in a roundabout way he's doing that same Shyamalan bullshit but like this makes way less sense than lady in the water lady in the water oh. is at least like a straightforward narrative yeah oh 100 percent. like like Shyamalan is no stranger to like a sense of self-sabotage he's done it before oh, yeah. um continuously like, it's kind of like the story of his career at this point well not necessarily i would i go to bat for the last couple like sure. i like to knock at the cabin i liked old um you know like i think that man works so much better with a smaller budget um yes. because you know and and like i said i mean we talked about it on the box like richard kelly hasn't made a movie since 2009 you know, would I like to see him take another crack with like a little bit less money? You're shaking your head. No, I, I with cool. less with less money, give him like a five million dollar movie as opposed yeah. to like a, this was a 17 million dollar movie. And then I think the box is probably like about 30 million. So I'm like, give him like a five million dollar movie. Give him like a Sheen Carruth level uh, budget. It's just like you've got. $8, yes. Yeah. Give give him give movie. give him the upstream color budget. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, just don't be a shitbag like Shane well, Carew. Yeah, don't life. be yeah, Shane Carew. But... <laughs> yes. Even though 
that's such, that's such a tough thing. I like Upstream Color is one of my favorite films in the last decade, and also, yeah, dot dot dot. Uh, it's like being sucks. a fan of that '70s show now. It's like, oh fuck, oh. I hate half the cast. Yeah, most of the cast sucks. The foreman's innocent. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, give him the chair. <laughs> that Onion article. Is so I love funny. that article. <laughs> anyway, we're getting we're getting yep. off topic of Southland Tales. Um, Oh man, but like, oh my god, the ending of this movie. It was, I'm just jumping straight ahead into it. Yeah, it's just like, because fuck it. Like, there's nothing in the middle that's worth talking about. I mean, like the in terms of like structure of story, there there were some inklings and some things that came up earlier on in the movie that led me to believe that it was a, a comedy, or like it got me to laugh a little bit. Like I really like the point where Sean William Scott, they like knock out his uh, twin brother, quote unquote twin brother at this point in the movie. And he's a cop. And then Sean William Scott assumes his identity, even though he himself has amnesia and the neo-Marxist group led by uh, Sherry O'Terry tell him that like, um, like you need to be a cop now. And they're like, well, now they're really going to believe that like, uh, like they need to believe that you're, oh, I can't remember believe the exact you're a racist line. cop. Yeah, they're like, they need to believe that you're a racist cop, which I think is like a joke of like, well, he's a cop. So the implication being like that, I think people will see the LAPD in uniform and make that judgment call immediately. They don't need to wait for the racial slur to come out of their mouth to go, oh, that cop's a racist. <laughs> but he does do it. Uh, but like, he does. Like, and, and it's like Hard R. It, he does and it's 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 uncomfortable but i also like kind of laughed not that he's saying uh uh that word but just the sort of like uncomfortableness and the look on dwayne johnson's face like the yeah. reaction of dwayne johnson's face to it is like kind of funny and and how he's sort of like and you could see it in in sean william scott's eyes that's like again he says it not innocent but he's you could see him work in his head trying to say what he thinks the other person would say. And, yeah. and it was like, it actually was sort of a, a comedic bit that actually worked in that yeah. moment when he's on the ride along, uh, you know, even though a, a unfortunate word was spoken, it was still like kind of funny that it's just like the way him working through it in his head, it's Dwayne so Johnson's absurd. reaction it's when so he abrupt. says it. And then he's just like, nah, man, I'm just fucking with you. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, um, so it's like there's little moments there uh for yeah. sure i think amy poehler's like pretty funny but she's doing like the shouty thing which like i love amy poehler but she sort of did that for a minute until she found her groove like in movies because it's like this and i'd say like blades of glory like are very uh-huh. applicable like compatible characters she plays well and she did the same thing on on uh saturday night live a lot too it was like a, a shouty uh um either mother or sister character they also had her play like younger people a whole lot yeah um and i mean i think that she really really branched out of course when uh well she's off that character in wet hot american summer which yes I think that's is, true it's funny oh she's um, great in wet hot american summer too like uh oh absolutely yeah, absolutely but so. then it, it's really easy to see like in parks and rec where I think like there's a there's a pre and a post Parks and Rec Amy Poehler yeah I think I have not seen Amy Poehler do this uh, shouty way too exuberant character since like mid season like mid seasons or mid series 
of uh parks and rec yeah that's true like movies like sisters and and right. uh, things like that like yeah you're right it's it's uh i think baby mama was probably the last one i could think like point to mm-hmm. uh and then park and then parks and rec and then it's been sort of a variation on the the leslie nope character for sure yes. i would agree with that um but yeah there's some stuff that's funny there um I, I enjoyed the introduction to Will Sasso's character where he's like yeah, giving shit about the uh, interview that Kristen now is doing, uh, like, mm-hmm. like making cracks at like the feminism and, and whatnot. Um, I kind of liked the, at first I liked the line of like, you know, you're a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide. Yeah. But then when it's replicated at the end of the movie, I was like, this is just fucking lame. Like, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's lame. <laughs> that, and I also, I, throughout the movie, there is a, a motif. They keep quoting f- much more famous lines. Like, yes, the, this is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. Now the whimper or bang the bang. Like mm-hmm. that's, it doesn't kick off the movie, but it's very close to the beginning. Um, there, there's several that they end up saying throughout, and I, I didn't understand. Like, okay, why are we making literary references to better writers than Richard Kelly? That seems like a a bad move to like. Hey, it seems like screenwriting one hundred one type yeah. of stuff. You know, like uh, it's it, it's weird. It it it's it's weird for somebody who at this point was. I would say an established screenwriter, like successfully. So, you know, Donnie Darko, the theatrical version was, you know, well-received. I mean, obviously it wasn't a big, yeah, I know. I know. I, I've not seen the director's cut. We've established this, but um, I know it's actively worse. And so left to his own devices. Eee. But like, you know, he'd written Donnie Darko at this point. He also written Domino as well. Mm-hmm. The Tony Scott movie, which like, you know, say what you will about it, but like the movie, you know, it's a movie, like it's a movie yeah. with a functioning like story and, and beginning, middle, end and all of that. And so like the, the dude's established. So it's so wild that he like um, it, it, it reeks of like um, and, and I guess I in my research, I found out that like he had written this like years before and it started as like hollywood satire and then he mm-hmm. sort of like made it more like a political satire in, in the wake of like 9-11. Um, so it's like it makes me wonder like what had happened. Like I don't know if you ever saw the the Duncan Jones film Mute that's no. on Netflix. Uh it's bad. It's quite <laughs> bad. Um I'll just I'm not going to mince words. It's bad. Um but uh but it's one of those where it was like his first script. And like and sort of like and it was in that sort of like early days of screaming screaming Jesus streaming gobbling up whatever like content they could find getting whatever filmmakers they could oh, find yeah. so it's like semi recognizable name yeah exactly yep. so they basically like you know it, it, it feels like a movie that's a first draft that he just dusted it out of the drawer picked it up and Netflix is like yep sure here's thirty million or whatever that movie cost. Um, and this feels like that. It feels very much like a first draft of half-baked mm-hmm. ideas. Because it's like, like you said, I wouldn't dissuade anyone from watching this. And I think there's a lot here, but it's like, it really needed somebody to come in and help refine. Like, you know, yeah, Kelly himself cut 15 minutes out of the movie, but maybe somebody else should have been locked in that editing room with him. And, and... cut 40. <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah. Honestly, a you, lot could, out of it. you could cut forty minutes out of this movie. I, I bet, and and have it be more, more streamlined. I mean, I don't think more it would, sensible would. Yeah, it wouldn't fix it, but it would make it 
I think more palatable to people no. for sure. And I think that there's fun things to, to do with it and, and say in there, like I, the, I love the double murder scene that happens with John Lovett that you're talking about where the cop comes in, just yes. pulls his gun out and shoots them both. And they were supposed to stage a double murder. So they were equipped with squibs and the cop shoots him in the chest. And then the guy backstage, like hits the button. And then like the squib goes off and they're like yes. already dead. Cause they're supposed, cause yeah, they heard, cause they heard the gunshot and they realized yeah. it was supposed to be a blank, but but it wasn't so they so, oh, yeah. now, so now they have this big like gaping wound and then the squib goes off <laughs> like a little like <laughs> like pop yeah that was funny and it, it, like that that whole bit was super inspired and it's just also like john lovitz too being like cold-blooded like as a fuck. hard like, ass i think you need backup yeah <laughs> i just like john lovitz so seeing oh, yeah. him in that was like great you know like it, it's a it's an inspired choice for sure like yeah there's little moments like that that are great in it um I think the overall music cues are also great. Like not just the killers one, but there's a great uh, use of uh, muse Radiohead, um, uh, which friend of the show, Jenny Nolf said in her letterbox reviews, you can't have muse and Radiohead in the same movie. Those are just the rules, Um, which is kind of true, but you know, but Bridget Kelly said, fuck it. They're both there. Uh, Blackout there to break the rules. Blackout and planet Talics are are Mm -hmm. in it. Um, Wave of Mutilation, uh, oh, yeah. Pixies is used really well. Which is like um, an alt version too. It's not the it's the UK version. surf version, which I ah, prefer. Okay. I prefer that version to be yeah. honest. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just like it, which, which we've praised Richard Kelly for that on every movie we've talked about. The dude knows how to use music cues really really well. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, it doesn't come together. Not and, a satisfying way, especially the way the movie ends with the 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 you know the both Sean William Scotts meeting each other and and them you know realizing that they've like floated through time and space and they're actually the same person, like one of them's like cloned, and that the reason that they had amnesia, both them and Dwayne Johnson's character, is that they went through the wormhole uh, in you know through this like alternative fuel source that's being mined um and so like you know boxers it was like faded that boxer santoro has to die and then there's like a, a weird like dance number with sarah michelle geller and mandy moore of just like he's gonna die oh well fuck it like it has to happen this way mm-hmm. so do this dance number and it's just like none of that shit satisfying it's like it's like uh yeah it's like surrealist but it's the worst kind of surreal like it's bad surrealism like it, it just uh it's just unfortunate that the movie sort of uh the the movie is the opposite of the the phrase this is the this is the way the world ends it ends with a whimper it does yeah. not end with a bang <laughs> there is a no. bang but it's a whimper <laughs> there's a there's a bang but like it, nothing had been concluded in a satisfactory way up until oh. that scene so that it happens and it's just like oh okay sure yeah and credits, the, then and the credits and I was like, okay oh, cool. all right well i guess that's over and it like it's just a double sting in the eye that it's it's a, a two hour and 26 minute movie yeah and it's just like you had ample time to give us something that could be wrapped up in some sort of satisfactory way and the fact that like i don't even feel like anybody even had an arc i mean like i guess uh, uh the rock had an arc in a sense kind of but he's still he, not even a fully rounded character by the end of it like i couldn't really describe the guy to you he had a plot arc not a character sure. arc yes yeah yeah that, that's the way i would put it he he his his story served the greater 
uh greater good the greater good um but not but like yeah like you said know nothing about the dude himself so it's uh yeah it's uh yeah it's a shame and butts it it, ultimately it's butts and uh i i think i'm glad you know i'm both i'm sorry i made you watch it but i also (laughs) am glad at the same time that i could have this conversation with one of my best friends because i really do just want to close the book on southland tales like i've i've I've, like this is it close it and and burn it i'm done i'm done with southland tales like (laughs) it's it's over it's over i've tried do you own uh, Southland Tales or have you like rented it this many times? So uh I do own uh I, I do own it now. Um well I guess here's the story. Here's the oh, story God. of it. So I I did own it once upon a time on physical Blu-ray because I used to uh where I used to work at the Cinemagic Theater in Portland uh 10 years or yeah 10 years ago now was just up the street from a store called cd game exchange which is unfortunately no longer there uh maybe the Mm. chain exists but that one doesn't um but i bought a cheap yeah rip i bought a cheap blu-ray for like three dollars because it's one of those if you ever go to used stores like because the people who love it have it and nobody else wanted it but it was like mass produced by like sony or whoever so there's a shitload of copies of it so um so I had it on Blu-ray the first time I watched it, which was also for a podcast a decade ago. Um, and then I got rid of it and then I rented it. Uh, or no, I think I watched it on streaming. I rented it because I rewatched it ahead of our um, episode where we talked about Donnie Darko. And then this time, now I do unfortunately own it digitally because it was another one of those situations where it was $3.99 to rent, $4.99 to buy. And I was like, well uh like it's a dollar there might be a rainy day where you decide to give it another shot maybe that's the one where it clicks and that rainy day will be like the fiery like apocalypse yeah that'll be the end of the world (laughs) this is the way the world ends me watching southland me watching southland tales (laughs) again for the fifth time so oh man okay well uh let's let's move on to a mess that's impenetrable but is at least like enjoyable to sit through um, oh yeah like 100 percent. which is which is dune uh from 1984 a beginning is a very delicate time know then that it is the year 10,191 in this time the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange the spice extends life The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secrets have been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meat. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. But we have worms signed the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe can bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the stars! 
space controls the universe. And greatest terrors. So Dune from 1984. Chris, was this your first time watching this one? It was. This is an episode of firsts for you. It is. <laughs> what did you think of, of David Lynch's oft maligned adaptation of Dune? Oof. That is a, a loaded question. Um, I am so glad that I saw Denis Villeneuve's Dune part one before going into this. Um, because I, I very much needed the context. Um, but I also haven't read the book. Um, I can't read. Uh, so that's a huge bummer. But <laughs> this is a very little known fact about Chris. He cannot in fact in, read. In case anybody needs to know that, I can't read. Um, but no, I, I just never read Dune. Uh, I've never been uh, a hard sci-fi guy. Um, so I really like Denis Villeneuve's uh, Dune Part 1. But going into this movie, the fact that this movie starts with, uh, um, and I'll, I'll look up the actress's name. Oh, Virginia Madsen. Uh, oh, yes, as, Virginia as Madsen. Princess Arulan. Uh, uh, yeah. Not scully uh as i call her every time i see her because she looks so much like jillian anderson that there's always a, a part of me that goes scully then i have to uh, correct myself but yes virginia madsen just looking straight down the barrel of the camera being like hi welcome to dune so in the year 2335 or whatever it is it's like 10,091 or something yeah, yeah, there's, yeah there's four planets okay so then this one over here this is arrakis and this is like oh we're starting with like a classroom history geology geography lesson uh in order to get people introduced to the world and i was like this movie is gonna be rough and story-wise i'm not incorrect However, uh, it's not the toughest pill to swallow because it's like a presentation wise. It's gorgeous. The soundtrack from Toto fucking rocks. Oh, the Toto soundtrack. And then the main themes from Brian Eno, too. Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. so good. Oh, it's, God. It's so good. Presentation wise, you're like, this is an amazing epic movie. But the story, like, it's just impossible to ask somebody to squeeze the entirety of Dune into just over two hours. Like this is shorter yes. than Southland Tales. And if you want to talk about like, you know, no substance, this has way too much substance to squeeze mm -hmm. into it. Well, it's shorter than Southland Tales. Yes. It's also 20 minutes shorter than Dune part one. Yes. And, and Dune part one, I know book readers who complain that Dune part one like rushed too much. Like they, they didn't give enough time to certain. Dune things. is dense and, and yeah. it's, it's hard. It's a hard. Well, that's why like Alejandro Jodorowsky was famously going to make it uh, as mm -hmm. chronicled by the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, which I do highly meant recommend if you can get over the amount of canceled people who are talking heads in the movie, <laughs> uh, like director Richard Stanley is one of them. Uh, disgraced film critic Devin Faraci is another. Uh, so if you can get past that, um, it is an insightful documentary basically because uh, watching Alejandro Jodorowsky talk is like one of the most soothing things you could possibly imagine. Um, okay. But like his version was going to have like Pink Floyd was going to do this score. His son was going to play um, uh, uh, son. Brontus was going to play Paul Atreides and mm. um, Orson Welles was going to play Baron Harkonnen. Oh, that uh, been dope. Which would have been amazing. He would have been hammered uh, the whole time. Oh, been he was hammered when Yodorowsky went to go meet him. <laughs> that makes sense. Was he filming that commercial? Or is, is I wish his excellence. I wish he was. Um, but Yodorowsky, of course, like 
the man's never made anything accessible in his life. And he's like, you know, it'll be 10 hours if it has to be. And so like no studio was going to do that. But of course, yeah. like the seeds had been sown and they made its way into other movies. Like Asia Geiger was going to do the design. This was pre alien. Yeah. And then he ended up getting picked up by Ridley Scott to do it and so on and so forth, um, which is awesome. And so um, eventually the novel rights landed in the hands of Dino De Laurentiis um who was our, our hero our hero dino de Laurentiis, and um and he had courted david lynch and uh the funny thing is like at this point this was david lynch's third movie mm-hmm. and you know the two previous previous movies he had done was Eraserhead, of course his first movie which was like big on the midnight circuit but he did the elephant man which was nominated for seven oscars including mm-hmm. picture and director so like it was a very successful movie so he like people were courting him pretty much to do movies he was offered return of the jedi i don't know if you know this or not yeah but yeah he turned he was, it down he turned it down because he even said himself he's not a big sci-fi person but like he liked the idea of dune and it's sort of like uh like the challenges that came with it um which and is because, funny because the star wars is barely sci-fi barely it's it's an adventure serial wrapped up in science fiction it's it's fantasy that is is playing sci-fi it's pretending that there's science involved it is but i also think there's so much sort of like surrealism in dune the novel that i think appealed to lynch because even though this movie is heavily compromised his dna is in it all over this movie oh you could tell like that sort of like low hum sound from like a david lynch movie is evident a lot um there's a lot of shots of like like uh faces superimposed and the mm-hmm. camera like swirling much like the beginning of a racer head like there's there's a lot of like lynching elements in the movie but of course harkonnens are like straight out of a lynch movie dude the harkonnens are goofballs in this movie dude they all look <laughs> like scott farkas from uh, Christmas yeah. story. <laughs> like, every single one of them this is just like gnarly redhead like <laughs> when i say come you better come this is so funny and like the the whole like and it's so funny watching like this in comparison now that we have Denae Villeneuve's at least first half of the story where it's like everything is sort of like this like brutalist architecture and everything is this sort of like minimalist and I think it fits the world too and -hmm. it's all sort of more practical like especially like we only see um because baron harkonnen is Stellan skarsgård in the uh, uh villain new version and so like yeah. you see him raise up through his little like thing but like the dude in this looks like uh looks like harlan williams and rocket man he's just like whirling around in his suit all over the place it's so funny um i laughed every single time i i oh, yeah. laugh at that i laugh at the the uh uh famous shot of uh fade rautha harkonnen played by sting in this movie where he like emerges from his little cubicle in that like with shirt underwear off. with his shirt off like hands on his hips like <laughs> which is funny because fade rautha is like pivotal but he doesn't have a huge role in the overall story hence why he's not in the first part and mm-hmm. he'll be in he'll be in part two played by austin butler um but in this one it's like I can see Dear Lawrence just being like, well, we have Sting, so we got to have Sting in this movie mm-hmm. as much as we can. Um, maybe I shouldn't be doing an accent, but I don't know. Can you be racist if it's Italian? I've been told it can't be the case. But a nationalist? No, nationalist is completely different. Yeah, that's, um, that's different. Don't, don't accuse <laughs> us of that. <laughs> uh, 
but no, like it was weird too because the introduction of Sting was a was a uh, a superimposed shot of his face of him going, "I want to kill Paul Atreides." Yes, and it was like that's one of the things I put in my letterbox review is that everybody in this movie will will say their motivations will say what they're going to do what they recall from a previous scene um they'll say lines of dialogue before they actually say the line of dialogue out loud all in an inner monologue that's whispered at at the audience and it it's one of the weirdest things because it's like it's stuff that i haven't lost track of and i'm stupid so like I if I haven't lost track of it, I know that the general audience is totally fine. But it would be like uh what did he say? He said it was about the tooth. Use the tooth. And it's like, yeah, this happened 5 minutes ago in the movie. Like I haven't lost track that you have the poison capsule in your tooth and you're supposed to use it at this pivotal moment. So like it's stuff like that that there's no way that that Lynch doesn't understand that. And he knows that the audience has to be up to it. So did he, did he include it on purpose because it's weird? It's hard to say, but I mean, I think, I think the, the, the biggest piece of context to provide is that's how the book is written. Yeah. The book is written with everybody's inner, inner monologue sort of being like spoken at any given time. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's always been sort of this like quote unquote unadaptable book because you can't just, there's no way to depict that cinematically in a way that's going to make sense or be quote unquote cinematic. And um, so I think he included that because that's in the book and so he was trying to adapt the book, I guess, as best as he probably could, because he is the screenwriting credit as well on this movie, too. Like, the, let, lest we forget, it's not just like he took someone else's script. He did adapt the screenplay. Um, but I think he included it because it was um, because it was in the book and because it's dense material. I wouldn't be surprised if Dino De Laurentiis and the other producers were like in a Blade Runner sort of situation where people were like, people aren't going to understand this world so like you need to have this like voiceover to like get over like to my knowledge that's the reason why virginia madsen addresses the audience at the beginning of the movie which um you forgot to mention my favorite thing about that is like she fades away and then she comes back to explain oh yeah <laughs> she's like oh and by the way oh i forgot there's one more thing. this planet is called arrakis also she's got, like as a notepad in her hand yeah, it's like just reading off a cue card. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's like uh, 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 things. Uh, <laughs> it's Amberlynn. Amberlynn, yeah. The cue card She's just down in like the lower <laughs> quarter of the screen looking up off screen. You're like, uh, we, we find ourselves on the planet Arrakis, which is where they mine spice, which is what makes the, the universe run. <laughs> the spice, the worm. The spice is the worm. Um, yeah. But uh, connected. <laughs> but that, that was the smartest thing Villeneuve did was to like eliminate the voiceover narration because oh, it's yeah. like like if you tell your story and you tell your story well in a visual sense people are going to understand what is happening so like mm -hmm. I feel like he really made that movie like palatable and I agree with your sentiment because I had seen this movie first and I had seen this mm -hmm. movie I haven't read the whole book um and I need to catch up with it but now that the part two got pushed to march of next year i now have more time to finish the book yep. but um uh but like i saw this movie 
pre-reading part of the book and pre-villain news version. So I came into this completely cold. Blind, and the first yeah. time I saw this, it was in college. It was like 2011, 2012. Because we uh, we had our, um, oh, was it our production management class? The, the infamous production management class that nobody had a good time with. Um, and so we had to basically line item a script of Twin Peaks. Everybody was assigned a script of Twin Peaks. And so I decided, and it was around that time the show hit Netflix as like Netflix streaming was sort of coming up. So I really got into the show and I got like on a huge David Lynch kick in like early to mid college. And so it was like, it came down to where I had watched everything except for Dune and the straight story. So I watched Dune and I was like, I don't know what the fuck is happening in this movie. Like, I have no idea what is going on. Um, but like they, they are introducing things via exposition in voiceover until the very last scene of the movie. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I mean that I, I joked the, the, the spice, the worm, the spice is the worm. That's like just headed into the third act of the movie yeah. when they finally like are fighting uh, uh, the Harkonnens and, and doing the battle. Like it's, it's insane that the, the, the that was the decision made and it, and it makes it more confusing. Like, cause if yes. you lock in, you're like, okay, like, cause like, it's dense and there's a lot of different like people you have to introduce. I understand that, but like the story itself is fairly basic. Like, okay, there's the, there's the emperor, right? Okay. And there's uh house Harkonnen and there's house Atreides and they hate each other. Um, and there's this prophecy that uh, Paul Atreides will, uh, you know, in uh, empower the Fremen on uh, Arrakis. And so we need to make sure that he dies. So we're going to have, uh, we're going to entrust all spice mining operation to the, the house of Trades, and then the Harkonnens are going to come betray them and then they're going to die. And then, okay, cool. We can proceed as, as follows, but mm -hmm. you know, Paul Trades escapes and he meets the Fremen and then he leads them to a revolt and so on and so forth. So it's very simple, but the way that it's sort of presented is anything, but like, no. especially when we get the first like introduction to the emperor and it's like the giant, like, fish tank monster <laughs> oh my god yeah i i still had don't really know what that thing is. i don't either which we should know the effects are from the great carlo rambaldi who did mm -hmm. et um all of the makeup is phenomenal in this movie it's gross too like mm -hmm. it's it pushes it's pg-13 i i will say that like it's it's pretty grody a lot of the time <laughs> but oh baron harkonnen looks disgusting oh he's like heart the... plugs that they have in people is like yes Ugh. or like the the uh the young uh lady jessica's daughter like we see like the inside like the baby inside mm -hmm. the womb of that is like super gross too like um it's like a uh, quato from uh total recall it is a lot like quato uh but then it's like it it's never not funny when uh she's like speaking to the emperor when she's a full grown child that she's doing the benegesseri voice. It's, yeah. It's always funny to me is like suffer whatever she's yeah. saying like it's so funny. Wait for Paul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but well, that and again, that Villeneuve was smart to only do like the benegesseri like vo like that's the only internal monologuing in that movie and it's Right accurate like it makes sense for them to be doing that and so yeah. um but yeah it's it's like you said having some context going into this movie helps because if you're going in cold take it from me if you're going in cold 
this movie is gonna gonna lose you. It's going well, to lose you. I, I we're that's why we're talking about you know uh, the the flops. I, this movie a hundred percent makes sense why it flopped because oh, I mean, yeah. it, but it's a what because the craft going into the movie like making the movie is phenomenal. The sets yeah. are amazing. Uh, I think all the performances are are great. Everyone's uh, great. Honestly, it's got like, a really good cast. Inspired, I think. I think McLaughlin is great, though. Mm-hmm. I got to say, now that we have a comparison, um, even though I wasn't a big Chalamet believer, like in his early starting career, I actually think he's the platonic ideal to be Paul Atreides. Oh, sure. Like McLaughlin, I have no issue with. I, I love the guy. I love like most things that he's in, but I do think he's too like cocksure. Like you never get a sense that this guy is going to be like a uh, falter in any way. Yeah. Even if you understand and know where the story is going, you never really get that sense where like, there's a vulnerability to the way that Timothy Chalamet like uh, approaches that character. But right. Um, I still think McLaughlin is good in it. I like Everett McGill as the leader of the Fremen, uh, who's also a Twin Peaks alum uh, later on. Um, uh, Virginia Madsen is good. Uh, it's nice seeing uh, Brad Dorif is great in it. I love Brad Dorif. Um, Jurgen Punch now is nice to see him. Uh, it's it, uh, Patrick Stewart is also great yeah. as Gurney in this. Um, uh, Kenneth so- McMillan as uh, Baron Harkonnen. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, he's Jurgen Jurgen Prock now uh, taking a break from the family distillery over in Germany to come over and and be uh, Duke Atreides. Yep, briefly, but he's he's good. Yeah, it's it was nice to nice to see Max him von Sydow. Max von Sydow, Sean Young as well, uh, playing Zendaya's character from the the new oh, version. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, and I got a oh, and and Paul L. Smith playing the Beast Raban. Uh, Paul L. Smith being the alumni from Pieces, uh, yeah, which we had recently talked about on a Patreon. Go give us a dollar; you can give it a listen. You can, you can absolutely. Uh, and I like, uh, I like Francesca Annis as Lady Jessica. Uh, I think, oh yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're hard two for two because I really like Rebecca Ferguson's performance in in the new one. Um, so they're they're two for two on casting Lady Jessica. Um, so the cast is good. The makeup from Carla Rambaldi is good. Like we said, the Toto Toto and Brian, you know, score is great. The sets are great. The effects are great. Um, you know, it's got those Lynchian touches that we know and love if you are a fan of David Lynch. Uh, but it is still, without any context, entirely impenetrable, very compromised. Um, I, I did my, I think it was my film history film theory and criticism class i think that we had or i i can't remember which one it was or no it was history and narrative film i don't even remember our class we took on that yes um i did my final on blue velvet and mm. uh, i remember in my research doing that that um when lynch signed on to do dune because the because the de laurentis entertainment it takes entertainment group produced blue velvet mm-hmm. and um he signed on to a deal to do dune and then to do a smaller movie that would he'd have complete creative control over and do whatever he wanted to. And uh, I guess Lynch and De Laurentiis like fucking hated each other making this movie. Like it was a really tumultuous process and and neither of them really got along. So but there was a contract to be fulfilled. So uh, De Laurentiis gave Lynch peanuts for his follow up movie, which turned out to be Blue Velvet. So um, rocks. which rocks and turned to profit which dune did not um so uh dune might have now it's in the black like 40 years later yeah it's in yeah the black, it took, you took know? a minute but but um 
because there's a great 4k from arrow video that mm. put it they put out last year that I, if, if you do like this movie i highly recommend it's the most like beautiful looking print of the movie you could find the, the best part about the movie is looking at it so i'm yes. glad that there's a beautiful 4k transfer of it oh yeah it really is the best thing about it it's a beautiful it's a beautiful looking movie it's a gruesome movie um yeah handsome production values all the way around but it's like if you have no familiarity with dune you're going to be lost but i'd recommend people now even if you hadn't read it you know if you've seen the Denis Villeneuve version like you yeah. were saying chris like I think this movie is much more approachable if you have any kind of context for it, for sure. Yeah. Cause it's like, you could still figure out what's happening. Um, well, it's funny cause there is a drop off because I've, there's only been Dune part one. So definitely watching the movie, I was like, man, this is a whole lot of exposition and stuff. I don't really know what's going on, but thankfully I kind of have background context because of Denis Villeneuve's. But then once the movie gets to the point where he meets the Fremen, which is where Dune part one ends, yeah, and then it goes into the rest of like his relationship with the Fremen and what happens in the next couple of years with them. I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> it's really like a tale of two movies. Like, I I understood about an hour and an hour and a half about before he meets the Fremen. Um, I was on board because of Denis Villeneuve's movie, but then like the last, the third act. Yeah, I, I don't know. I well, that. And that's a wild thing to note too, right? Because like this movie, like we said, a shorter 20 minutes shorter than Dune part one, but 90 minutes of this movie is Dune part one. And then it's like 45 minutes of what will encompass part two in Vill- yeah, Vill- 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 and Villain. And I can't, I can't imagine his version running less than like two and a half hours probably. Oh, no. So um, there'll be a lot. I'm sure there'll be a lot more of certain characters like who were not introduced in part one. I, I would imagine just because Florence Pugh is playing Princess Arulon. We're going to get a lot more of her. Um, Christopher Walken is playing the Emperor in mm. Villeneuve's version, which I can't wait. Um, Hell yeah. Your father Arrakis. was a weak man. <laughs> wow. The spice. <laughs> the spice must flow. Bring me Paul Atreides. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I, I will say one thing that does look like shit in the uh, Lynch version, especially in relation to the Villeneuve version is the force field that they use to do their knife fights. <laughs> Where it's all blocky. <laughs> it's it's just a pure block. That's a Gaussian blur on each side of the, the 3d block that's around the actor. So then they're supposed to be knife fighting, but it's the least exciting knife fight you'll ever see in your entire life because it's just like a character from Minecraft that's like kind of running into another character. And I don't know if, if this is probably only going to connect with like 2% of the audience that's like me, but if you ever played Resident Evil 2 uh, on uh, like PlayStation or uh, N64 and you uh, were able to beat the game a certain amount of time and unlock the character Tofu, it looks like two characters of tofu just running at each other and running into each other. And then there's just like fighting sounds and it's hard to tell what the hell is going on. Um, the concept of shields in Dune when it comes to hand to hand combat is cool and it's really fun, but man, the way that is presented here is oh, it, bad. It's real bad. And it's even like worse because 
um in the villainue version like not only does it look great like it's got that like warble effect yeah like you could still see like it's really cool but like you know that like paul is there for combat training with Mm -hmm. gurney versus this one paul's just like learning about arrakis before they head there and like gurney and like dean stockwell and the other guy like yeah yeah they're just like sneaking up on him and then it's like out of nowhere it's like whoa what is happening right now Oh, so it's it's really clunky how how it's done in this both both the framing and and the setup of that sequence and then also when they the shield is like these just different cells on different parts of the body and it's just like it's so it's real ugly it looks real ugly i'm glad you brought that up before we concluded this episode because that was something i really noticed on this rewatch it was just like man like we can compare and contrast all day but like this is bad like like you know like the only other bad shot that i like noticed but it didn't matter because everything else around the sequence was cool as shit is there was a brief moment when paul atreides is climbing the the worm to conquer it but they show like they pull out to do a wide shot of him hanging on it but it's a really bad composite over like, oh, the puppet. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, but the puppet looks dope, and then it looks dope when him and Everett McGill are on there, and then the Toto like power cords is like, yeah. and I was like, yeah, this is awesome. So I forgave it. <laughs> yeah, the third act when they're getting into battle, and and the there's uh, like a mixture of miniatures and and composite shots and things like that. There's a couple of composite shots that are are a little rough, but overall, like I don't feel like they linger on the composite shots for too long. It's enough to be like if if you're looking for it and you understand what a composite shot is you'll see like the rough edges around the characters and be like oh yeah but like for the most part it's a movie from 1984 and you're like yeah. i can forgive most of this uh, yeah oh absolutely i i won't forgive the blocky shields those are I, bad, that, but... those are terrible they should have definitely not <laughs> done that i mean because you can star wars uh, is out at this point like you can give the audience that there's a sense that they have a shield on yeah and then and then put like sparks or some colorful flash when they swing a weapon and then the audience would be like oh i understand that they have a sh- i get it but like literally the the majority of the frame is obscured by the big blocky like blurred out things that they're wearing and you can't see the combat anymore yeah and it's just like this is the worst decision you could have made you can't see the combat and you could barely even see Kyle McLaughlin or Patrick Stewart in that moment either like it's it's so they literally are just Gaussian blurs you're just like I just see motion of color but that's not interesting to watch no it's not for sure um but yeah, it's still I, I still think it's a good like it's a fun movie, like regardless with with like, again, with a bunch of caveats of like you have to sort of be predisposed to it. But if you could get on its wavelength, I think there's a lot to appreciate. It's certainly not the disaster it was heralded as at the time, because I remember it being like super panned. Roger Ebert gave it like a one out of four uh, stars and it was just like, yeah, it's not it's it's like again it's a mess but it's an enjoyable mess yeah I feel. it's not but a one out of four like it, no it, there's too much craft in the movie yeah to call there's it too that. much technical merit to be yeah. like oh this can be just dismissed out of hand it can't be it can't no i don't think it can be either but um i, I don't know david lynch might disagree with that statement though he's all but disowned the movie but um well there was i a- know he had a bad experience because of his relationship with dino de Laurentiis making the movie yes he did and there was like a I don't know if it's a producer's cut or an extended cut. I don't remember what they called it, but it's uh it's Alan Smithy, the 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 longer cut of the movie. Um so but I've never seen the longer cut. I've only ever seen the theatrical one. And 
I think I probably have somebody else come in and shoot the extra footage, or is it still stuff no. that Lynch presided over? No, I think it's still stuff Lynch presided over. I think the reason it's Alan Smithy is because even though it's compromised, he probably still oversaw the edit of what went out into the world. And so I think this edit was done without his uh, consent. And so that's why it's Alan Smithy, where he's gotcha. like, I, he's like, I didn't, I didn't oversee this. I don't, con- yeah. I don't sign off on this. So please take my name off of it. So I think that's what happened. But see, when the guy who releases a twenty-minute black and white short of him interrogating a monkey on netflix is looking at you and be like i can't put my name on that maybe you <laughs> fucked up i would say so yes <laughs> but i would still watch you don't know jack like no matter what oh, i watched it yeah <laughs> that's why i'm commenting on it i didn't even dislike it no it's wonderful i it's do it and he's got something in the works i don't know if it's a tv show or a movie but he's got something in the peak season four uh i actually hope not to be honest oh okay twin peaks season three or aka twin peaks the return ends in such a perfect way that like i trust him enough as an artist and arguably my favorite filmmaker that if he wanted to do a season four there'd probably be a good reason for him to do it and i would watch it but i feel it ends in a way that you don't need to do anymore I, I like I think it ends pretty perfectly for the thesis that it's trying to make. And so I, I think it's a whole new thing. I just don't know if it's a TV show or a movie. That's all I know. But huh. all right. And he probably doesn't know entirely until he gets in the editing room. So right. Um, but anywho, um, any other thoughts on doing of these other movies before we wrap this episode up? Uh I well, Thank you for putting this. Like, I, I know this has been on our, our doc for a while, but thank you for finally bringing the, this up because these are all first time watches for me. And, you know, on one level or another, I enjoyed all three of the watches. Um, I, I still think that they are all very appropriately put into the categories that they're in for our episode. Uh, but I think that they all have uh, their own merits. And I think that this is an interesting episode in that there isn't a single movie in the bunch where I would say, don't watch this one they they yeah. all have something that's there for you and i know that there are even sort of there, there's a fan base for um southland tales yeah people Huge that really base. love the movie so i mean like you know fuck me like i could be wrong maybe you would watch the movie and you'd really love it but i i do know for a fact that they're all worth watching and i think you know leaving this episode if these are movies that you haven't watched or haven't watched in a while or you are completely living by the reputation that they've gained by word of mouth um they're worth a rewatch and a reappraisal i i'd say so like i said even southland tales which i i have uh, major issues with is is clearly evident by this episode and i guess i should also lay out um you know because i mentioned that uh, there's a 4k of showgirls from vinegar syndrome and a 4k of dune from arrow video i didn't even mention the fact it's a blu-ray but arrow video did put out southland tales a year or two ago and it has that can film festival cut on oh, it um you know so if you were to test the waters and you like the movie um then that is available to you as well so um so it's 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 there although so. as we've seen from the director's cut of donnie darko I wouldn't. I don't, I don't know if giving Richard Kelly more time uh, is is the answer. I don't plan on. I have that Arrow 4K of Donnie Darko and uh, that has the director's cut. And I've said it before. I have no desire to ever watch it based on 
everything you've told me about it. Like, cause I know you love the theatrical cut and I've only just come to really appreciate it in the last two years. So I'm like, if the director's cut is like, but then I, why would I waste my time with that? So the theatrical cut has a bunch of shit in it that uh, was uh, recognizable in Southland Tales. Uh, a lot of the stuff where he gets the um, book on time travel, it, it's been, no, I don't remember Donnie Darko anymore, but the um, the book that he gets from Grandma Death that he's reading on his own and he brings up throughout the, the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. In the Donnie Darko director's cut, there are chapter breaks where they are literal chapter breaks where they superimpose chapters of the book on the screen and show diagrams and try and give backstory and explanation for how time travel works. Instead oh. of leaving it ambiguous as to whether that's even happening or if this is all a dream or like, so like instead of leaving it in that dream state, it tries to make it more clinical and scientific and ground it and it fails miserably. Oh, that may that track because there's chapter breaks in Southland Tales too. We didn't even yep. mention that, but yeah, there are chapter breaks in it. And I think so. we started like chapter four too. Like we don't start chapter one. Is it because of Star Wars? Like, oh, he, oh, we're waiting for the prequel trilogy <laughs> from Richard Kelly. <laughs> Richard Kelly's gonna go back and do episode one, He's two, and three. North Northland stories. <laughs> God, God help us if so. That would be horrible. Uh, Richard Kelly's going to make a new project. Oh, wow. I wonder what it's going to be. Oh. It's um, Westland Yarns. Wah, wah. I don't know. No, maybe if the, if the streamers get desperate enough, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. But as anyway. As yeah. Anyway. Before we wrap this episode up, um, it is, well, next week's a Patreon, and then yeah. the week after that is your picks. Yeah. Um. So I, I think I think you had a pretty solid idea for what our next Patreon is. So I'll, I'll let you take the lead. Oh, on did that one. did we land on that? Did we, we land on it? That? I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, we may as well because I don't have anything else in the form right now. Um, Cornetto trilogy. Yeah, rock on. We'll do it. It's been uh, a while the Edgar since Wright Cornetto trilogy. I, I know that we had had Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and The World's End. Um, kind of interspersed throughout this form. I'm sure if I do a control F right now, I'll find it on like six or seven different episodes. Um, <laughs> and I guess I'll just have to delete it from those episodes because we'll just do a retrospective on the whole Cornetto trilogy because all of those movies could be argued that they are too good to be in a good, bad, what? Um, so may as well just compare them to each other. Absolutely. And if we need to tie a anniversary or whatever, it is the anniversary of the closing because it's like roughly the 10 year anniversary of uh, the world's end. Because uh, it came out in August of 2013. So, Perfect. Totally. Uh, meant there that. we go. So we, to- we to- totally planned. Uh, not an accident. Uh, 100% <laughs> what we wanted to do. Um, <laughs> and then that would come to you the week of September 22nd. And then September 29th would be another main feed episode. And I think it is your picks, Chris. So what are we talking about? Uh... Yes. Uh, so we're going to be talking about we're not quite spooky season. We were so close, but I'm 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 already in the mood. So we're we're going to edge that line where all three of these movies um, are horror or horror adjacent movies. Uh, and it's going to be about a soldier returning home. But is it still the same soldier that left? Who knows? Ooh. I am so excited for this episode. <laughs> um, 
two of these movies i am so so excited to talk about and one of them is a first time watch for me so hell yeah um, i'm excited but, to talk to you about that first time watch for sure oh absolutely i, I think it's safe to say at least for me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that this is a potential oops all bangers episode. Yeah, I'll give you the oops all bangers. <laughs> okay, yeah. Maybe, maybe you <laughs> I'll just come out and say I enjoy the bad really, really <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but but it's but it's rightfully put in in it the deserves scan- to be in it, the it bad. deserves yeah. to be in the bad despite the fact that i love it but it deserves to be in the pit um but i'm looking forward to it um but in the meantime you can find and subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher iHeartRadio, google podcasts and many others you can subscribe to us on patreon at patreon.com slash the good bad what it's only a dollar you get a bonus episode every other week you can follow us on instagram and hive at the good bad what or email us at the good the bad the what at gmail.com our logo comes from Michelle Parkos and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and SoundCloud link you can find in the show notes respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Letterboxd at C underscore T-H-O-M. You could follow me on Letterboxd at Ryan underscore Oliver. You could follow me on threads at Riley90. That's R-Y-O-L-L-I-E 90. And I forgot to plug, um, I was actually on a podcast recently Um our friends of the Rotten Rewind podcast were so gracious to have me on. They're doing a um, kind of apropos of this episode. They're doing uh, Rotten Auteurs. Uh, they're doing like auteur misfires. So uh, movies by oh. auteur filmmakers that uh, landed that dreaded rotten splat on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. They invited me to talk about Spike Lee's Summer of Sam, my my favorite unloved Spike Lee movies. <laughs> so uh, you can go ahead and give that a listen. It's on uh, They're pretty much on any podcatcher of your choice as well. So you can check that out. Is that that splat from Rotten Tomatoes before or after they were paying folks to come in and give them positive reviews? What do you mean? Oh, did you not read that article? Oh no! What? What? Oh shit! Are people getting paid? Did they, are, are people actually yes. getting paid? Yes. Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah. No. There, there was there was a there was a pay for fresh reviews uh, scheme happening behind the scenes on Rotten Tomatoes that just Yikes. recently sort of uh, broke. Uh, Oh, fuck. And to me, it completely kills the credibility of the entire site. Well, I mean, I, it was hanging on by a thread anyway, but I'm more concerned because... I don't like uh, the aggregate score anyway, but then, yeah, that kind of... Yeah, mostly I'm worried about... Um, I'm worried about the Snyder bros uh, attacking people. That's my my biggest thing. Cause they, Mm -hmm. they were always like, fucking Marvel reviews, get positive reviews. The critics were paid by Disney, whatever, which uh, it was always like to me. I was like, no, it's not fucking true losers, but uh, uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Hopefully that's not, hope Mm -hmm. that's, that's, uh, that's not good. But um, yeah, on that note, uh, (laughs) thank you for listening to our most recent episode of Get Bad What? We'll be back on the Patreon feed next week with an episode on the Cornetto Trilogy, and we'll be back on the main feed in two weeks with an episode about a soldier coming home, or are they? 